Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Alarm room 2, engine 16, rescue 16, 78, battalion 3, squad 2, engine 3, rescue 3, respond to Elena Gallegos picnic area. It'll be at 0 Sims Park Road Northeast. This will be in reference to a 45-year-old female ankle injury. She's about a half mile up the trail. This will be a 78 Charlie 2. Elena Gallegos picnic area. Engine 16, rescue 16, squad 2, battalion 3, 78, squad 2, engine 3, rescue 3, 78, Charlie 2. All units respond on EMS 1, EMS 1. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AFR podcast. Today, we're talking about wilderness search and rescue, and I'm joined by Captain Kevin Ferrando and Lieutenant Justin Spain. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Cap. Thanks, Andrew. All right. So, uh, spring is in the air. Weather's getting nice. Uh, Restrictions are being eased, so we've got a lot more people out and about, and that brings us to our topic of the day, which is going to be wilderness search and rescue. So, uh, Justin, I would imagine you've got the most expertise on this, being our HTR coordinator. So I want to start with you. What is going to be the area of operations? What is wildland search and rescue going to include? What areas of the city? For the city of Albuquerque, we are ultimately responsible for all of our open space, which includes the, some of the foothills, the Bosque, West Mesa, petroglyphs, um, the volcanoes that are out there. Um, we may have some in the far east mountains, but that's a little bit more covered by county for us. But um, we're here for everything within our area, um, especially along 8s, 16s, 22s, 14s. And then uh, we can always be called and help out Bernalillo County or APD throughout the entire Sandia since we have a unique location here with such a large wilderness area um, with such a large city next to it. So we get a lot of folks that disappear up into the Sandias and some of the bigger rescues we've had five, six, seven agencies on scene working together. Okay. And um, how far up into the mountains? I think I've heard a few different numbers before, and I don't know if any of those are accurate as far as like we only go, you know, half a mile up into the foothills. Um, What's the truth on that? So there's no definitive distance that Albuquerque Fire will or will not go from the trailhead. It's a little bit more of a risk management and taking a look at the distance location, the weather, the crew, the injury, whether it's a search, whether it's a rescue. So what we ask the officers to do is work with the chief officer that gets dispatched with them, make a good assessment, find out where they're going, and then start that direction. So the big goal is to get out there, help, be prepared to help. Some days you may be going two, three miles up Pino. Um, Other days you may be going 500 feet from the top of Indian School. Uh, We're going to have to take that. The official division is the wilderness boundary. So most areas you'll see where we cross the barbed wire or wire fences throughout the foothills. That means we've entered the federal lands or the wilderness area. We will still go into that area if it's safe for us to do so. There's not, say, a lightning storm coming in. Um, But at that time, the chief officer will start making notifications to state police or Bernalillo County if we enter into their open space. But there's no reason that we need to stop our trip up the Pino from Elena Gallegos at that east end of Spain area there's no reason to stop at the wilderness boundary just because of a imaginary line right there if someone's on the other side of that fence that needs it and we are close and capable of doing it um and it's safe for us to do that we should get our crews up there 
All right. Thanks for that, Justin. And uh, I jumped ahead of myself. Actually, I wanted to have you introduce yourself for uh, those of you that don't that haven't met you yet. Uh, remember, there's a lot of new young guys out there and, uh, you know, not everybody knows you as well as we do. Thanks, Cap. Um, so Justin Spain, I started on the department in 2006. Um, pretty much spent my career straight from the academy to station three onto the engine, squad two, paramedic school, rescue three driver, rescue three lieutenant, and then over to station eight for a little while. So that's been the pretty much the 14 years of my career. Now I've got some big shoes to try to fill and uh, filling in for Chris Carlson, who is retired as the HTR program director with the uh, background in heavy rescue, wilderness and rope rescue. And so far in your, in your time in the department, about rough estimate, how many of these have you been on? Um, myself, just about six or seven with the AFR, but our department has run about, I think we're at about 13 wilderness rescues, meaning we had to be at the trailhead or leave the trailhead, which is right around our yearly average, actually. We're usually sitting about 15, 17 a year. Well, within the first three months of this year, I think without COVID response, people were looking for an excuse to get outside, and we were, were already 13 wilderness rescues in so far this year, and summer hasn't even officially started. Okay. All right, so if we do have somebody, say a hiker, who's out there trying to get outside after being cooped up, um, and they injure themselves out on the trails, what kind of dispatch are we going to get for a call like that? Um, so our standard wilderness dispatch is the engine and rescue of origin so usually age 16s um everyone's told they could be out someone else get called in so we always back it up with squad two and that captain there can make an assessment on whether or not he wants to bring the whole station with them or not um we always have a battalion commander squad two engine and rescue of origin apd open space join us and the reason we include that commander is we need to have a command presence so we don't lose our crews we always know where they're going someone always watch the weather additional resources handle in all the other crews coming in, directing where to go, and then APD Open Space brings in invaluable assets that uh, allow us to access certain areas and additional tools. And a lot of times, Justin, um, we get the calls from county, right? So they'll they'll get dispatched just based on where the repeater is or where that that individual calling. So if they call in and it's it might be in county's district, but we're getting it through city's dispatch, then we will still respond maybe with jointly with county at that point? Yep, sometimes we'll respond with them, report to their command structures, so usually when their BCs will be in place. Maybe we end up running a joint command or we end up being a staging officer. We just work in as we normally do on any other scene. Okay, Kevin, I'm going to go to you. So with we, we found out what units are going to be dispatched. What do these units need to know about a wilderness search and rescue that's going to be different from a, a normal call that we have? Well, you know, these are not a necessarily a, that immediate response you have a little bit of time to start gathering yourself uh figuring out a few things that you need to have uh what kind of gear do we have what are what's weather conditions like what do you think the time requirements are going to be how far up is this individual hopefully coordinating through dis dispatch or if they're still on the line with the calling party get a good location uh if you have a crew already heading up there you know we need to know what the terrain's like how far we are and what other resources we're going to need so a few of the things that, you know, you're going to want to start taking because you're going to go back to the station, you're going to get your gear, and it's not going to be bunkers. It's going to be more wildland gear, comfortable shoes, whether it's tennis shoes or you have hiking boots or whether your station boots are good enough, you know, uh, a pack with food, water, uh, just things that you're going to need for yourself. Now, talking with Justin earlier, things that people don't really consider is what the patient's going to need. 
So if it's hot, do you, you know, can you provide some sort of shade? Do you have chapstick for them? Are they going to need water? Are they going to need food? And these are all things that, you know, might be based on just how far up the mountain they are and how long this extrication or this, this rescue is going to take. And so uh, it's just a matter of bringing the right gear. Now, that's just personal gear. Aside from that, you're going to want to have your medical considerations. Does this person have a fracture? Is this person having a cardiac event or a medical episode? Uh, what are we going to need? As your paramedics and your, you know, your personnel start arriving on scene, you're going to want to start making sure that they deploy the right gear. So if you need your narcotics, make sure you take in your, your fentanyl and your Versed. If you're starting to give narcotics, then you're going to have to maintain airways. So what are you going to need? At least a BVM, probably a pulse ox, you know, aside from your, your jump bag that you're going to be taking up. So you're probably going to have to take some of the stuff out and you're probably going to have to put a little bit of other stuff in. So these bags are going to be slightly customized. The crews, I think, that run these calls, 16s, 8s, they're probably going to be a little bit more geared, and they're going to have a better understanding of what that, what that requirement's going to take. So, All right. And uh, with that special equipment, can one of you guys talk about the, the Stokes with the wheel on that? And have you ever used that before? How does it work? Yeah, I think we've, we've probably all used it, right? So uh, eight sixteens, um, squad two, uh, all going to have a Stokes with a wheel. So it's a big metal basket with a with an ATV wheel that you can attach to the bottom of it, and uh, it's they're nice now because we have foldable ones and we pack them up, and you know usually it takes two people to get all that gear up to the patient. Getting the patient down is another story. That's pretty labor intensive you know, you're going to want a lot of hands. And so, I mean, potentially 10 people. Yeah, 10 is what we're aiming for as our standard here on AFR, and that's safety of our rescuers, meaning they're not going to be tripped, tired, et cetera, on a two-mile carryout. And also it does our patient advocacy by giving them a good speed constantly towards that definitive care that they need. So if we're trying to do it with six, we start slowing down with some injuries and we're not getting there as quickly as we should. 10 plus, fresh bodies, let's rock and roll and get them where they need to be. Justin, um, how many high angles have we had in the foothills? Um, there's a couple every year. thing is, Sandy, is it's rough terrain, so we end up actually just using a lot of single rope belays just to lower them down, like, say, 10 or 15-foot drops that are nice and small, just hand over hand, hand them off the cliff edge, but the patient is on a rope, and just to catch them just in case. The system that we put into play here is designed to be supported for high angle. So if our 8s and 16s get there and with their litter and their wheel and all that, all the rigging in there is life safety, and immediately Mountain Rescue, APD, or whomever can clip into their high-angle system, and it's safe for that patient to be in the high-angle environment. So that's why we package the way we do in the foothills. Okay. All right. Now, you mentioned those other agencies involved. Um, I know you're involved with the Mountain Rescue team as well. Who is going to take the lead there? Um, are we going to show up, and we're just kind of supporting what they tell us to do, or... How's that command structure going to work with multiple agencies on scene if we have the uh, Army National Guard and their helicopter involved? Um, tell me how that all works. So in this area, we've got three agencies that will be that formal command. and That's Albuquerque Fire, Bernalillo County Fire, or New Mexico Department of Public Safety, New Mexico Search and Rescue Division. So they kind of fall in there with state police. So we will maintain control of our open space, maybe run a joint command with Bernalillo County, um, assist them where they need, or vice versa. They are in command, and we will support them where they need. Um, APD Open Space is a small unit, so they only have usually three to five officers on duty at any time. 
And they're usually out in the field working, so we'll run command with them working underneath us. When it becomes big, so say we don't know where the patient is, or it's a large rescue with seven, eight agencies responding, we will do a joint command or hand it over in the case of a search. We don't know where that patient is to New Mexico Department of Public Safety or New Mexico SAR. And they will bring in a incident commander from state to take over that incident for us. So we're always reporting to our commander, a county commander, or state police commander. You ever have any problems with communications in the foothills? Oh, that's what that's all about. <laughs> what's your What's the best way to uh, to um, to keep comms between that many agencies? Um, we've got a couple options here. So we've outfitted our wilderness stations with VHF radios, so they can talk on their frequencies to state police, Sandoval County, Rio Rancho Fire. On our end, though, we're on an 800 system, a little bit more secure, some more technology in it. And we've got uh, TAC-9, I think, set up by our wildland division. And what that links to on the VHF side, or the normal radio side, not the 800s, is um, an ABQ MAC channel, the Albuquerque Mutual Aid channel, in which those that are running on VHF, Mountain Rescue, Sandoval County, etc., they can log on to that, and we can tune into that, and we can talk across 800 VHF frequencies. So um, that's that nice bridge that we have. Two, we've got the convent channels on ours. That's just a really fancy walkie-talkie. Um, three, we've kind of our least preferred. Cell phones still work decently well. Um, four, carry that VHF radio with you, and sometimes you're just going to have two radios, an 800 and a VHF, and talking on both, relaying the information. Can you uh, get more specific on that walkie-talkie mode? You talked about the convent channel that we have just walk people through that and um i guess i guess i'll go ahead and spoil it is if it's got the d on the end or say like eight tac nine four d or delta on the end of that frequency then you know that's going to be the direct so that's how you know that you're in that walkie talkie mode or just a line of sight communication yeah yeah so if you had comms where you have a hill that's blocking that if you had a spotter up on top and could have a person on both bases of that mountain and then you could all communicate just based on that line of sight yeah okay gotcha and have we used um when an individual does call 911 from the foothills have we uh have a hard time locating what are some of the options that we have catching their cell phone pings is that one of the do we have that capability at our dispatcher do we yeah so let's talk about how we receive in that initial start moving out into the field um, something back onto the radios real quick is just remember all the rescues now have tri-bands in them. So your 800 radio has all the VHF channels in it as well. So that's how we get a call to hospitals for our transports. So just know that Mexico search and rescue, AMRC frequencies, Rio Rancho fire, Sandoval County fire, et cetera, are also in all the rescues now with their tri-band radios. But going back to how we know where we're going for that dispatch, um, the dispatch comes in. Who knows how it comes in? There's endless avenues for these 911 calls to be received. Um, whether it ends up in our lap, county's lap, or someone else's, what we'd use is and ask the patient kind of what was their starting point and ending point and their intended goal for the day. And dispatch has this ability to call what we call phase data. And they're able to pull off at least a triangulation off the towers that their signal's hitting. And they can have a general area where they're located. Or if they have digital service and services enabled, they can pull off the GPS of their actual phone's location. Um, we have a little bit of access to that in the alarm room. The main reason for having APD Open Space join us is APD has access to more location information from the cell providers. 
so they can actually call in and get an, some kind of override to get a little bit more detailed information on where that phone's location was. That will at least give us a good plot, throw it into Google Earth, Google Maps, Gaia, Onyx, whatever you guys so desire. Um, there's endless options out there. Whichever one you know how to use is probably the best one. And plug them in and have an idea of where you're going before you try to run into the mountains. And on top, of that, you have your, on top of that, you have your uh, PD helicopter, Bernalillo County's helicopter that can hopefully maybe get out, spot the patient. Yeah, our aviation's come a long way in this area, which has brought in, they're flying all the time. If they're on a law enforcement mission, there's no reason to reach out, not, not to reach out to them through dispatch and say, hey, we believe there's a patient at these coordinates. Can you guys go do a flyover and see if they're there? And you're like, well, I'll be darned. We flew over and there's six people waving at us. Or we flew to that spot and there's not a soul to be seen. Well, let's do a little bit more legwork before we run into the mountains. Nice. All right. So now that we've all been dispatched out and we feel pretty good about the location of the patient, I want to get into the different response modes that we could be going out to. So if uh, we have Justin talk about the different response modes and how they're going to be different, you know, time will be different for each of those situations. Yeah. So variable incidents. They all start with a search no matter what. we got to figure out where we're going, even if someone needs to be rescued or they're injured there. So we have a search in general. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where they are. They're lost themselves. We can't find them. We get to use some of our tools, such as the phase data, their GPS information, et cetera, to be able to at least go to the general area or their plan. We started here. We're going to end here. We got lost along the way. All right. So we, that's a search. Albuquerque Fire alone does not do searches, though. So our SOG is written so that we will initiate it, we will handle it, but we're not going to go search South Peak on the Sandias and look for a lost soul. That's We will hand over to New Mexico State Police or New Mexico Search and Rescue. Um, that doesn't mean that we just get to say, nope, we don't do it, and we walk away from it. That at least means they, the captain or the chief needs to make a contact with state police, gather what information they can, relay it, and do a verbal or a face-to-face -face handoff to state police, and they accept that mission. We can't just leave someone unattended out there or just say, oh, their dispatch said they had it, we're done. Our commanders are going to be handing that over to state police if we don't know where they are. However, with the foothills, a lot of our actually searches are pretty close to the vehicles, and when things kind of go south for some folks in their life and they get depressed, um, bad things can happen within, say, 1,500 to 2,000 feet of their vehicle. So if we say we have their vehicle, APD helped us confirm it with open space, there's no reason that we cannot search, say, a 1,500, 2,000-foot circle from where their vehicle was and see if they're hurt nearby or that's where they decide to carry out their plans for any reason. We can at least start that, and then when state police comes in and they're not in that area, we say, hey, we've cleared this pretty well with you with 10 to 15 people running in circles looking for them along the trails. So we at least help. And if they're right there, we handle it, we solve it, we're done. So at least start that search there. Most commonly we have a rescue, though. My leg's broken, my ankle's hurt, et cetera. They're usually fairly minor. I mean, most of them have been that minor, right, Cap? Uh, you know, yeah, my, my experience is whether it's Station 3 or I think at one time I was at Rescue 12 and we helped out with a rescue that, that Aids was on, uh, have been pretty, pretty low level, mostly on the trail, nothing off trail in my experience. And it's just been that sprained knee, sprained ankle, um, you know, lower extremity injury. Maybe we gave medications. Uh, I think one time I, we gave morphine back the, back in the day uh, for a lady who had a sprained knee and just wasn't able to walk out. And so put her on the Stokes and got her out. 
our rescues are decently easy for us. They're usually under two hours. Our average is about three hours or less for all of our rescues in the foothills. However, that 17 Alpha has gone 17 Delta slash, even if there's a 17 Elko option, um, pretty significant sometimes, resulting in broken ribs, bilateral fevers, broken pelvises, um, requiring immediate air evac, et cetera. So even if it is a 17 Alpha, just plan for the worst out there because you now have a one-hour hike in delayed response for, oh, bring me some IV fluid, or I need that for uh, opiates, et cetera. So plan for the worst, and everything else will be boring is the idea here in the foothills on our rescues. How would a, uh, a body recovery differ from a rescue? What, what um, say, is midnight? Yeah. Um, usually we don't try to do body recoveries at night. Once they're confirmed, a body recovery, just do night operations, increase risk to rescuers, et cetera. Body will still be there in the morning. Um, APD has sat on a few bodies overnight for us in the foothills until our crews came in to help them carry them out in the daylight. However, if it's believed to be a third-party death, we still learn to treat it like a rescue until one of our medical providers confirms that is a body recovery. A traumatic arrest, no pulse, obvious signs, etc. So if we just get a third party saying, oh, I think this guy has passed away here in the foothills, which happens a couple times a year, um, we still respond. We treat it like a rescue until a medical provider confirms that. And so then, there might be a yeah. scenario where we go out, confirm that the person is deceased, and then we wait until the morning light before we're able to actually remove that uh, body from the foothills. Yeah, if it's right at the top of copper, we're just going to knock it out right in there. But if it's up towards Eye of the Sandias or some of these other areas that are a little bit more remote, we're not going to try to do a two or three mile trail carry out at night for a body recovery. Also, PD has to do all their work and they're probably going to want to wait for the daylight for scene photos, etc. Okay, so we're just we're moving along this SOG here. We're just following along with the Wilderness Search and Rescue. We want to get into some of the hazards that are going to be um, potential uh, hazards to rescuers out there in the wilderness. I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about when you're getting your gear ready. Uh, make sure you have the right clothing, equipment, and footwear. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna see things like blisters. You're gonna see things like uh, if it's hot out these summer months. I mean. You know, we're, we're, we're coming on our normal 90 to 100, 100 degree days. So make sure you have plenty of water, sunscreen. Make sure that uh, you're watching out for snakes, potential for insects. I don't know about mountain lions and bears, but, you know, there's some in the foothills. So, uh, you know, and our weather changes pretty fast, too. We do get these afternoon thunderstorms that roll in. So we can go from a blistering hot day to heavy cloud cover with potential for lightning um, there's always potential for high winds here. So depending on where you're making that recovery or that rescue, it's going to be uh, just, you know, situation dependent as far as um, what you're going to need to take with you and how you're going to prepare for it. So, and it all starts at the very beginning of that dispatch. Just kind of know what you're getting yourself into. If you bring it, you can take it off kind of thing. If you don't have it, you can't put it on. So make sure you prepare for everything and what you need to leave at the truck is that's fine. Nice. And Justin, you mentioned most of these are pretty straightforward, simple um, rescues for us. What patient considerations should we be thinking about? What is that patient going to be going through if they're um, all strapped into the Stokes and getting carried down a trail? We do remove a lot of their ability to kind of take care of themselves. Like they can maybe scratch their eye or their nose a little bit. But um, in the heat, you got to cover them up. You have to maybe worry about sunblock, them using the restroom, chapstick. 
and even a medical treatment is this one of the few times we will water and feed our patients and we treat those like a medication so you still got to make sure they're not allergic to what you're giving them and you got to keep track of their ins and outs for the hospital on those critical calls so but you might end up feeding this patient if you're prolonged transport out okay and then also let's remember that could just be uncomfortable so if we do have the ability to get that vacuum spun on there. Um, you mentioned a situation where it's the summer months, but what if it's the, the winter time? What else do we need to worry about for yeah. that? That vacuum splint is great in keeping warmth in, so it doesn't work so well during the summer and they can overheat that patient, but during the winter, that vacuum splint is some of the best insulation that you can give our patients to prevent that hypothermia on the trail carryout since they're going to be immobile for those hours. Nice. Also remember, uh, before we end this episode, I just wanted to bring up one time uh, I was up at 16s and we had uh, somebody like sprain their ankle up in uh, off of Elena Gallegos, somewhere like that. And I was just going code three, like as fast as I could. I got up to this gate and I was like, oh man, we're gonna have to cut this chain. So I just ran out, grabbed the bolt cutters, cut through this chain and uh, Kelly Garvin like held up the key. So <laughs> we should have access keys if we need to get off um, up into some of these paths, as long as the rescue is able to drive on it, you know, that, that took uh, some of the distance away that we had to actually carry the patient out to get the rescue up as close as we could. That's a good point. I know at Top Indian School, uh, there's a few gates, and you can actually drive pretty far up to, you know, past the water tower there. So it knocks off a half a mile of your trek down the hill. Yeah, utilize our breast trucks. Ask for specific resources. You know that have four-wheel drive, smaller vehicles. Chiefs vehicles have been used to transport patients before. APD brings that in there. The big thing is just realize no matter how critical it is, it's not our typical response of one minute to the truck, to the scene within four minutes, et cetera. You have to figure out where you're going, no matter if they're on their last leg or they just sprained their toe. You absolutely need to know where you're going before you run out into the wilderness. So these could be that 15, 20 minute spin up time to go because you don't, oh, we went to the top of Embudo when we should have been at the top of Embudito. Now your patient's out there for an extra two and a half hours. I know, uh, Justin, you had a pretty good rescue. Was it a year or two ago on a medical emergency? You guys had the coordinated effort with county on a uh, on a individual up there having a cardiac event? Yeah, so that's kind of takes us back to the beginning of this podcast where we talked about that boundary that we go in, that imaginary line into the wilderness, top of Pino. He was about just over three miles in, um, had a heart attack. Tombstone T's classic Passing out on the trail, pale, cool, diaphoretic, 16s, 8s, county, Albuquerque Mountain Rescue, APD. We were all there on that one. 16s did that remote assessment. Great. Wow, this sounds cardiac, even over the cell phone remote assessment from the third-party caller who was on scene. They hiked in the life pack, threw him on the monitor, tombstoning, transmitted to the cath lab, took him under two hours to get him to the hospital. The way they were able to do that with additional resources. Some of those resources was Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office has a metro air unit in which they're able to short haul or long haul, dangle patients from the outside of the helicopter. So they're able to fly that in there, put them into a screamer suit, clip them to the bottom of the helicopter, fly them out like a bucket of water, and we put them right on the gurney at the Atlantic Gaze Trailhead, threw them into the PHI, and he flew immediately down to I don't know, one of the hospitals downtown. I don't remember where we I sent him. I think it was press, but yeah. I, I think it was press. But it was, what, two hours and four minutes from 911, three and a half miles in, to receiving a cath of 100% blockage. Two air units. Yep, two air units doing a relay on that with Albuquerque Mountain Rescue. And something that we did really well and we were learning from, 
is we relied on the helicopter, but that wasn't plan A. They're actually plan B throughout this. So we packaged, we used the wheel, we started treating, and we started moving towards the hospital with the litter in the wheel. The helicopter showed up before we made it to the trailhead, flew them straight to the hospital. Done. But if they have a transmission problem, a bird strike, they've exceeded flight hours, there's all kinds of complications with those things that defy physics. They can't make it. At least we started and we were 30 to 40 minutes closer to the hospital by moving down the trail. So that way, there's no helicopter. We're there. If we sat there for 40 minutes waiting for them and then they broke, this poor patient would have been probably not with us anymore because they would have been another two hours out from the trailhead. All right, Kevin, you got any uh, takeaways before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I, I think that uh, we've we really touched on, a, on how we run our operations, uh, how we coordinate our efforts with everybody. You know, it's, it's fairly labor intensive. It's time consuming. There's lots of moving parts. I think if you, as long as you have a good plan going into it, you're going to have a better outcome. And Justin, one last time, what are, uh, to sum it up, what are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid uh, just to make these go smooth? Slow and steady start Do your homework, find out where that patient is. Gosh, that remote assessment is priceless. Stack the odds in your favor. Customize your kits to what you need for that patient. Don't carry the OB kit for a 27-year-old male with a broken ankle. And always maintain that command presence. That way we don't lose you. And when all the additional resources arrive and it goes south, we at least know where to go and how to help out when everyone else shows up. Awesome. Thanks for uh, coming on and explaining that to us. Again, this has been Wilderness Search and Rescue. We've been going over. Thanks for listening to the AFR podcast. Thanks, Cap. Thanks, Andrew.